Engaging Leader, Episode 92, Seven Keys to Clarity and Conciseness. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Back in episode 89 about the power of brevity, We discussed three reasons why brevity works and is so important. Number one, it forces you as the speaker or the writer to be disciplined and clarify what your key point is. Number two, it prevents cognitive backlog on the part of your audience, which is where too much information prevents them from being able to remember or even pay attention. And number three, brevity leaves listeners or readers with energy and brain power so they can actually think about the information that you've given them, or they can share the ideas that you've provided them, or they can act on what you're talking about. So those were three reasons why brevity or conciseness is so important. And also in episode 89, we talked about four tips for being brief yet powerful. Number one, be very clear about your main point. Number two, use an outline or message map. Number three, follow the rule of three. And number four, use stories or examples to make a concrete point faster than an abstract illustration. If you missed that episode, uh, we went into a lot more detail about those and told some stories. I encourage you to go check that out. But today, we're going to talk about putting those concepts into practice in an organizational setting. If you contrast the power of brevity, what that can accomplish, and how brevity leads to clarity and vice versa, contrast that with what most of the corporate level communication uh, that companies provide their employees does. To talk about that with me today, I'm joined by Terry Sherwood, my colleague at Asmodale Communications. Terry, thanks for joining us again on Engaging Leader. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me back. Terry, how would you describe what happens with most companies out there in the, the, the average communication that organizations send to their workforces? Would you characterize that as being clear and concise? Uh, I think there are pockets where that happens, but I think more often um, what happens is that the communications originate from the experts, from the technical or functional experts who really know a lot about the content for any particular communication. And um, there's a temptation to include all of the knowledge you have and what you want employees to know. And usually the end result is is something longer than it ought to be, um, not as clear as it ought to be. And in some cases, it, it includes a lot of technical or corporate speak that doesn't mean a lot to people outside of, of that functional area. So yeah, there's definitely room for improvement at most companies. So we're talking about things like letters or emails from the CEO or a benefits communication from human resources or something from operations about how to improve quality or safety. A lot of times when they when they create a communication, it's the leaders feel that it's very this is very important information but employees either ignore it or they might start looking at it but pretty quickly this flood of corporate speak numbs their minds and they just move on to other the lights are on but nobody's home and they they're just <laughs> not going to engage with the content that you're hoping that they will i think that's right 
So in this episode, we're going to talk about seven practical tips for clarity and conciseness in any kind of organizational communication, where there's a communication that is representing the organization that's being transmitted to the workforce. What's our first tip, Terry? First, we're going to talk about starting with a clear outcome. Um, I think when when we work with clients to put together a communication, usually our initial discussion, um, what comes out first is all of the things they want the employees to know. So lots and lots of information. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important early on is to not focus so much on what you want people to know, but what the what the real outcome is. What do you want them to do uh, as a result of this communication? And just just switching that focus um, can really clarify what we're trying to accomplish with a communication. I think you have a good example uh, of a video we worked on recently. Yes, this was actually part of a of a presentation. It was a, an, an embedded video in a presentation that a large manufacturing client of ours was delivering at uh, plant locations across the United States. And because they were taking people away from their work to this meeting, so this was on company time, and they wanted to obviously avoid losing profitability as much as possible, so they wanted to keep these meetings very short. So this needed to be a a 20-minute meeting plus questions. So the whole thing should need to be less than 30 minutes. Right. But there was a whole lot that they wanted to accomplish, and they felt that the, the, the topic was uh, financial wellness, and the company was going to be uh, I- implementing a brand new program to help employees take their next step toward financial wellness. And they wanted to start with making sure they knew why this was important. And they felt like we needed to have a, a whole bunch of statistics to share with employees about what this problem was, what it looked like, what did what is financial... Uh, what does it mean to be in in a in a, pro, in a have financial stress, for example? But then, what could it look like if you were financially well? And just how big of a problem is it? it, it it's a very financial stress is a very prevalent problem in America, and it, it affects companies in all these different ways. Well, as you can you can already see by the way I'm rambling on, it's very difficult to make that point. And so we talk to the client about well, what do you want them to do with that information. Um, it's, they're not, never going to know everything that you know. You, you're the financial expert. They, they don't need to know all that you know, and you don't really need them to know all that. You're just trying to motivate them to pay attention a little bit to what you're trying to say, and then care enough to go put into action what you're asking them to do. And all we really were trying to get them to do within, in this 20-minute presentation was to take a an online assessment to measure their financial wellness. So we were able to say, well, what you what you're talking about there to accomplish that objective is a matter of a little bit of information, but especially an emotional impact. You're trying to motivate them to do something. So we were able to to reduce it to a video that was less than two minutes long that was just embedded fairly close to the beginning of the presentation that set up the problem. Here's this problem called financial stress and how it impacts people and hurts their work. And here's inside this video, we had these three quick vignettes of sort of typical employees with problems that they face. And then 
the rest of the presentation talked about how the company was going to help them. And then at the very end, there was a, a, an even shorter video that was saying, you know, just imagine if you took these this first step and then took some of the rec- followed up on some of the recommendations that they gave, uh, how your life could be different 60 days from now, one year from now, five years from now. So with a little two-minute video at the beginning and a minute-and-a-half video at the end, it motivated people to actually take action. And, and so you, it could have been a, a, an hour-long video or an hour-long presentation where you're able to keep it to 20 minutes or less. Yeah, I think that's a really good example where focusing the early discussions on outcome, what are we trying to accomplish, what do we, what do we want people to do or feel as a result of this communication, it not only helps you clarify the message, it helps you really choose the right medium for a communication or combination of media for a communication. And I think you nailed it when you said it's about what you want them to do or feel feeling because feelings, i.e. motivation, that drives what people do. So anytime you start saying, well, I want them to know this, or I want them to know that, knowing is not an outcome. Doing is an outcome, and feelings lead to doing. That's right. The second tip for clarity and conciseness is looking for opportunities to put things into short, digestible, actionable bites of information. Yeah, th- this is this is a big one for me, Jesse. Um, and and sometimes it, it can be a bit of a battle because you know going back to our, our previous conversation, um, when you know a lot, it's tempting to try to put everything that you know or you think you want employees to know into a communication. Um, and it, it, as you said, you know people can just go numb looking at information that is so voluminous and so technical um, that that it doesn't accomplish what you want it to accomplish. So uh, try trying to break it up and make it digestible, make it actionable, and really focus on the one or two or three priorities that you have for that communication. Um, you have a, you just have a better chance of accomplishing what you need to. Throughout the rest of the tips that we're providing in this episode, we will cover some of the ways that you can make things shorter and and digestible and actionable, these little bites of information. But right now, just one example is newsletters that we help various clients develop. These tend to be quarterly newsletters, and they tend to be short, often just four pages or less. And by the time you have the address section and um, the banner on the front and so forth, it really is more like three pages, maybe three and some change pages of content. And if you have some nice uh, graphics and white space, you end up with not a whole lot of words that you can use there. But because these clients know that this is a an ongoing communication effort, that four times a year or six times a year or whatever the cadence is, that they can plan to communicate information throughout the year and engage with employees throughout the year, it helps them not feel like they have to ram a whole bunch of information through all at one time, all at the front end or all at one time of the year. So, for example, benefits, uh, the employee benefits is often communicated very heavily in the fall. And having a year-round newsletter series incur- helps clients feel like it's okay to provide these short bites of information a- instead of overwhelming people with tons of information. Right. I think that's right. And I think that's a really good example. Because we do communicate benefits 
Um, and other things like performance management and compensation uh, tend to be communicated heavily at the year end. There's a temptation to try to slip into those communications, other reminders and other information. I think, you know, typical ones for a, a year end benefits communication, instead of just focusing on enrollment and what people need to do during enrollment and making educated decisions, um, a company might try to insert a piece about uh, the importance of getting preventive care all year long or uh, promoting their employee assistance program. And those are important messages, but they can muddle what you're really trying to accomplish with the benefits enrollment, which is get people enrolled and get them into the plans that make sense for them. So having having a calendar, um, I think, is a really helpful tool to plan out when you're going to address specific topics. It'll help you resist that temptation. Now, that's not to say that we always advocate sort of a drip approach to information right? when there's a real time-sensitive need to take action. You mentioned compensation and performance management, which often, even though you're supposed to be doing those things, those activities year-round, there's often a certain time of the year, at the end of the fiscal year, for example, where there's a lot of activity, especially on the, the part of the manager, but, but even the employee too. And when you're in, let's say you're the manager and you sit down and you're ready to, to, to process through a lot of this work that you're being asked to do as part of that cycle, you don't want to have to go back through all these newsletters or emails or social media posts that has been dripping information. You want to sit down with a complete toolkit at that point in time. So you do need to match, we, we, we want to match the communication tactic with the outcome that's needed at that point. But even then, that's, that doesn't, uh, you still would look for opportunities to say, if there are things that should be done more year-round or at other times of the year, don't try to cram it into that year-end toolkit, uh, like giving feedback. Why, why do so many companies feel like they need to educate, completely educate managers about feedback right at that year, fiscal year-end? Why not space that out throughout the year? Yeah, that that's right. I, I I agree with you. I mean, there was a time you and I have both in this been in this business long enough to remember a time where the drip approach was kind of popular, particularly with benefits communication. So you'd send out a newsletter every couple of weeks, sort of previewing what might be changing coming in the fall. Um, and that's real. That's really uh, become an outdated sort of theory around communication. It. We definitely advocate giving people all the information they need um, at one time or making it accessible at one time and at the same time focusing it on a specific outcome. Number three is avoid trying to accomplish too much with one piece. It sounds a little bit like what we just talked about, but there's a a little bit of of a different meaning here. Right, Terry? Yeah, this one, it... In general, it's a good rule not to try to accomplish too much with one piece and and to be focused on what outcomes you're achieving or trying to achieve. But this one, I think, really speaks to the media you're choosing. Um, You know, certain media uh, is conducive to higher volume of content and and others are not. So, for example, we we have a lot of clients, and I know a lot of companies out there, use TV monitors. So you put together sort of a slide 
that goes up there and it usually stays up there somewhere between five and 10 seconds. And again, there can be a temptation to try to accomplish too much in that one slide um, rather than focusing on a specific item. So, uh, you know, we always say it's better in that example to include more slides, you know, have a series of slides on a specific topic, each one very focused on a specific outcome rather than to cram a bunch of information into one. But the same concept applies to any media that you're using. You know, just just include an appropriate amount of content for that media and don't try to accomplish too much. And I think to just harken back to the previous point, that outcome should be some sort of action uh, almost always. So, um, and it, whether you're writing a, a newsletter or a TV monitor slide or, or a video or anything else, there, it still comes down to what action or maybe feeling, what do you want them to do or feel, and what's appropriate in that communication piece to make that happen. So if, if you've got a newsletter and any given article might be, let's say you're telling, you've got a human interest story that you're helping people f- to, to make an emotional connection with why this certain topic is important, then mm-hmm. and that maybe somewhere in that article you might have a, a little call out, here's three tips for putting this into action. On a TV monitor, you're, you're much less likely to be able to tell that story, um, but you might sometimes show the person's picture. You might actually sort of do it in tandem with a newsletter article, let's say, and you sort of reiterate the person's picture and then reiterate what, what are those one or two or three action tips that you're recommending. Yeah, I think a really good example of that is uh, we we work with a company um, that is increasing their uh, Facilities are increasingly going tobacco-free, and one of the things that's been especially effective is sharing the stories of people um, at those facilities who have successfully quit tobacco um, and uh, helping use their stories to motivate people who are trying to quit uh, as part of this initiative. And we use their TV monitors really just to convey that this is possible. It's been done and you can do it too. And we put up the pictures of the people who've quit and a little bit of information, but we don't have a lot of real estate to to tell their whole story. So we tell their story through posters and bulletins where we have a little more space, where there's more time for someone to stand and read the story if they're inclined to do that. Um, and, and those are, are geared also to reinforce the feeling that I can do it too. If they did it, I can do it too. But also to give them some tips about where they can go for additional help if they want to try to quit. Good example. Number four is targeting the information with the approach. So we're, we're talking about helping avoid making people wade through a bunch of information that doesn't apply to them just to get to the stuff that does apply to them. Right. I mean, I think this is the the tough conversation. How many versions of this piece should we have? And, you know, nobody wants more versions than they need to have. But you have to realistically look at how different is the information that applies to specific groups. And if it's different enough that it would either cause a big increase in volume of your communication to try to do it all in one version or you'd be at risk that people might misconstrue and not not self-identify correctly which information applies to them, then multiple versions are better. Logistically, they can be difficult, we know. We're, we don't love doing it either if we don't have to, but if it, if it makes the communication more clear, more concise, and lower risk, it's definitely worth considering. 
And depending on the communication, there may be technology that helps you uh, through a content management system or a personalization system be able to deliver right to that employee what's going to catch their attention most or be most useful. Yeah, I I think that's right. So I I like that you basically you want to weigh what's going to be the most helpful to the employee balance that out with how many versions does that mean you might have to do Um, if you go less versions is that going to create a muddled piece that's not helpful and sometimes you can get away from muddling things up if you use uh, hyperlinks or other other ways to layer information so that um, you know, a table of contents or something that lets people, you, you hit them up front with uh, the key messages, and then they can drill down for the specifics that would apply to them. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is one area, too, where where we tend to use, uh, you know, the voice of the customer um, to, to get a little feedback before you publish your communications, before you finalize them, and have a few folks go through them and see if it's clear, see if they, they make it through and they understand what it is you're trying to get across. And um, that information can be super valuable in deciding how much versioning you need to do. Number five is use everyday language whenever possible. So get away from corporate speak and your technical jargon. Yeah, this is really a pet peeve of mine, I have to say. Um, it is, you know, and some of it is just because we and the people we're working with, the functional experts, understand the content so, so well. Um, sometimes we lose sight of, of what's corporate speak or what's technical speak. Um, and you, ha- you just have to put yourself in the shoes of your reader or your average uh, audience member and think about what's going to make sense. Is there a shorter way, a better way, a clearer way to say this? And you and I do the same thing. We, we go back and look at a draft that we think is fairly close to final and say, how can we improve this? How can we make it shorter? How can we make it, how can we get to the point more quickly? And how can we remove any jargon that may not make sense to our readers? I th- always find that one of the easiest ways to break through the jargon is to provide an example or a story. And I know we talk about stories a lot, but this has helped me when I'm working with a technical expert um, who, even even if they don't think of themselves as a technical expert because they're, they're a senior executive, they're the vice president of corporate f- communication, but they've still been in this, this specific company for so long that they don't even realize that what they're saying doesn't actually mean anything to real-line <laughs> employees. And I remember we, yeah. we helped a, a major business transformation at a, at a large manufacturer. And they, the, this was the, the vice president of corporate communication put together a, a, a letter that talked about how we were rationalizing our operations and we were doing large-scale investments in mass economies of scale and, and so forth. So I, I knew what he was talking about, but I'm just trying to picture this poor mm-hmm. production employee on the plant floor or an engineer trying to think uh, or a salesperson trying to think what, what in the world is he talking about and so I said well, so let's just focus on one example what would we tell somebody that illustrated what you just said and so he said well I mean like when one of our salespersons wants to needs to provide a quote in a, a given country that they should have the same kind of information that we have in the States. 
And it what it the, the, all of a sudden you could you, you could picture this poor salesperson that was having to create a a cost estimate for some uh, uh, technology and had to build that up from the corporate information that's provided to them. And so you could just you could it, it created a picture. And so we left some of his jargon in there because they're just that was the that's what some of the especially their top leaders they they knew what he was trying to say. But if we could, we, when we translate it into a, a story like that or just a simple example, we help people get what he was trying to say. And we also helped him agree to throw away some of the jargon. Uh, we, got, we eliminated some of the jargon because he felt like, okay, I, my, the, the illustration is making the point for me. Yeah, I think we run into this one a lot, too. We do a lot of communication around new technology implementations of all kinds, you know, HR information systems and payroll systems, as well as um, expense reimbursement systems, lots of different kinds of technology that a, uh, a company might use. And anytime you're communicating that, you have to communicate it from the viewpoint of the user and what they're trying to do with it and what words they would use to describe those activities or transactions um, and resist the, the temptation to use the technical terms that the, the people putting the system in use on a regular basis. Terry, on this topic of everyday language, there's mm-hmm. this whole trend that has been led, I think, uh, to a large extent by Silicon Valley and the whole cloud-based right. environment of more of a trendy, even slang t- uh, language, very informal language. You, In the old days when Microsoft, if you're using a Microsoft product and you clicked on something, it would say, it, it would say okay. And now you click on whatever software you're using, let's say it's Google Apps, and you click on something or submit something, it might say, woohoo! Uh, so there's this slang <laughs> yeah. that's thrown in there. <laughs> right. And it's, um, it, may, it makes things a little more fun and more casual. Do you recommend that companies work that into there or go ahead and allow that? Or do we still need the kind of grammar police that are keeping everything on a more formal level? Yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer is it depends. It depends a lot on the company culture and, um, you know, what kind of corporate communication standards they have. Um, As you know, I'm certainly, I certainly trend towards the less formal uh, style of communication. If left to my own devices, I I will do that. Um, You know, that whole phenomenon has really changed everything, grammar, punctuation, you know, all, all the rules are kind of up in the air. So I, I think to really get people's attention and to keep their attention through a communication, you have to go less formal. You, in, a, in certain ways, you're competing with, with what they're seeing out there on the internet and on television. So I think to stick a hard line to the old grammar rules in most environments is probably a mistake. I think the communications will read dry and uh, it'll be difficult for people to wade through them. So I'm a big fan of of less formal and ignoring some of the grammar rules, but um, it's still a corporate communication. So I think there's a happy medium in there. Yeah, that's a good point. And and just being aware of what the corporate culture is and how it's going to work and the personality of the particular spokesperson or media. So I'm thinking like uh, the right. example we told earlier about those 20-minute presentations the language that was used in the videos, for example, is is fairly informal and casual. 
But the when the actual spokespeople stand up, and there's not just one person, uh, because this is sort of an army of presenters that are going out to all these locations. So we it's we can't dictate when you're dictating to a large number of people what kind of language to use. You can't necessarily put slang in their mouths because they may not feel comfortable with that. So we just we used everyday language. We didn't go too formal, but we weren't the sort of hip and trendy type of language that we used in the videos. Yeah, and and we have clients where the sort of opposite is is true. We do a lot of work for a large financial institution, and their written communications tend to be a little more formal. Um, they've loosened up over years, as most companies have, but still definitely on the formal end, but their best communicating executives, you know, the ones who are really considered um, the best communicators are very casual in tone and do use some of that slang. So I, I, I think you see a mix of, of styles depending on, as you said, the, the speaker or the, um, or the corporate culture. All right, number six, leverage the power of visuals. Because as we know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So you can keep your piece a lot shorter if you figure out how to use visuals properly. Right, and I think you mentioned this earlier um, in quarterly newsletters, for example, you know, even just a few years ago, uh, newsletters tended to be very, very text heavy. Now you see a lot more white space, a lot more um, graphic imaging and photos and things. Um, again, I think it's just it, it's a um, a trend in all media, not just corporate communications. Um, one thing that we have seen really trend up in the last couple of years is the use of infographics in communications across all corporate communications. And um, they're a great tool. They lend themselves to almost any topic, uh, but they're really, really helpful when you have a huge volume of data to communicate. And I think a, a good example we have is, you know, uh, we work with a number of companies who um, do engagement surveys eat every year and make a commitment to to share the results of those surveys. And they're usually um, shared not only at the corporate level, but uh, drilling down through the organization to some level. So you may see not only the, the results for your company-wide survey, but also for your department or your line of business. Um, and infographics can be really, really helpful um, for presenting that kind of data and chunking it up into topics that will make sense to people and they can scan it and not have to read volumes of pages of information. It helps people pull out what is most important, what's most actionable. Right. So that is helpful. Another sort of related topic would be data visualization. So data viz is kind of like an infographic, but it's where you're providing a bunch of information on a single topic and you want people to be able to look at the data and see the trends. So the easiest example would be if, if there's something that you're showing how this affects the country as a whole, let's say. And so we've got, well, let's just say election results. And you can say these are the red states and these are the blue states. And you got one picture that helps you understand all that data kind of in one shot. So it's sort of an infographic right. tends to be loosely about all one topic, but there's a, a bunch of different types of communication being summarized for you, whereas a data viz would be like one bigger, more complex data situation. Yeah, the infographic usually has several data elements within a, a section of it, but yeah, you're right. That the, both You see both of, that, both of those tools used a lot in internet media, on news programs, um, as well as in corporate communications. They've become 
very, very popular and, and for good reason. Not only does visual help you be more concise and more clear, but it, it's just frankly more engaging. If you, the, the proof for that is on Facebook or Twitter, where if you have a good uh, graphic on your post, I think we've all noticed that you get a lot more people commenting and liking on it than a simple text-based comment on, uh, posting on yeah. Facebook. Okay, number seven, the very last one, is plan for questions to be resolved at the appropriate time or place. Now, you and I, Terry, have both worked on projects with clients where there'll be some member of the, the client team member or members who have more of the administrative responsibility, and right. they are very concerned about not getting overwhelmed with employee questions, and which is a, a very valid concern. And so they, they think of all these questions that employees are going to have, and they start trying to add this information and that information to head off these questions. And pretty soon, your, your one-page, uh, your half-page email becomes a two-page email, or your four-page <laughs> newsletter is now a 12-page booklet, uh, or your 12-page <laughs> booklet is a 24-page booklet or whatever. So, and and th then people end up not reading it anyway, and they get the questions anyway. So what are some ways that people can, that, that, that companies can anticipate those questions without losing this principle of clarity and conciseness? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, it's an exercise worth going through for sure. And there are going to be some anticipated questions that come up that you are going to want to build into the general communications, especially those that apply to large groups of people. Um, so, so you can do some of that. Where you get into trouble is where, when you try to anticipate every question, as you said. And um, depending on how complex the topic is that, that you're communicating about, there can be a lot of potential FAQs. So, uh, you know, it, it's an old school tool, but it works. You know, creating an FAQ document and putting it somewhere where the people in, you, in your organization who are going to get asked those questions can access it is a really useful tool. Um, and as you mentioned, I think on a, a, a previous topic, having that be really well organized into topics, having a table of contents that links to the appropriate section, uh, making that FAQ document as user-friendly as possible um, is really important. If you have a 20-page FAQ document that someone has to just scan through to find the right question that they need to answer, it's probably not going to get a lot of use. But properly formatted, it, it can be a really great tool. The other thing would be, if, as long as you're creating those FAQs, if you have the, the technology that you can provide them online in a searchable format, and also one of those, right. the, the, the FAQ tools that will suggest questions. So if someone starts typing in their question and, and your technology is automatically saying, hey, do you want to read this? Or Here's three or four answers that may answer your question. So you basically, you're taking the FAQ, which is traditionally a tool we provide to managers or other leaders, but you're making it self-service when you use a technology solution. Yeah, and, and also I think in, in line with our short bites uh, recommendation earlier, a lot of companies have vehicles that, um, you know, like a banner or ad space on their intranet homepage where they can feature a an FAQ that would be of particular interest to either everyone or a targeted group, um, and and other you know uh, line of business newsletters or any any vehicle that gets to the people that you want to get to. If there's space where you can feature 
uh, a common question and answer. That's, a, that's great reinforcement. And one last technology tool that is often helpful to clients is a software such as Text Expander that you can provide your call center or, or whoever is going to be taking these employee questions so that if, if they're worried about getting a bunch of questions, you can put those FAQs into Text Expander and make it a lot easier for them to respond to the questions that get emailed in or asked online or, or otherwise um, so that they don't waste 15 or 20 minutes trying to find the right language and personalize it and so forth. They just, right. with, with a quick keystroke, boom, there's the answer and they, and they hit reply. And it just takes a lot of stress out of those situations. Yeah, that's a really handy tool. So we've looked at seven keys to clarity and, and conciseness. It's easy for me to say. Number one, starting with, a, <laughs> <laughs> starting with a clear outcome. What do you want them to do or feel? Number two, uh, focus it into short, digestible, actionable bites of information. Number three, avoid trying to accomplish too much with one piece. Number four, target the information as appropriate for each audience. Number five, use everyday language whenever possible. Number six, leverage the power of visual. And number seven, plan for questions to be resolved at the appropriate place and time. Terry Sherwood, thanks for joining us again on Engaging Leader. Thanks for having me, Jesse. All right, Engagers. I want to remind you that on our show notes for this episode, you'll find some links to some of the resources that we talked about. First of all, a link to our podcast episode 91 when we interviewed David Maxfield about his book, Influence, The New Science of Leading Change. Uh, also a link to some resources to help you create a message map so that you can communicate more clearly and concisely. Uh, there's a link to a video and a template that we've put together. And a link to our podcast episode 27, how to use the big little outcome scope to hit your target. As Terry and I mentioned, starting with a clear outcome is the very first key to clarity and conciseness. And that podcast episode will help you make that happen. Now, you can find all those links on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 92, as in episode 92. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. And you can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engagingleader or on Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.